Welcome back to Beyond the Uniform. I'm Justin Asiri, and my goal is to help members of the military community succeed in their post-service career. Today's episode number 377, The Ideal Team Player. It's about winning the, the, the hearts and minds of the employees so that they're committed to the cause. And, and it comes back to a point that Mike raised at the very, very beginning. And that is in the, when you're in the military, uh, when you give out an order, you, people do it. And if they're not, if their heart and soul isn't into doing it, they got a Sergeant Major that's going to breathe down their neck. Whereas is here, you, you have to lead and, and you can't uh, pretend to be a leader. You can't hide behind a rank on your shoulder. You actually have to lead through the issue and, and get people uh, motivated to solve the problem and to deliver uh, because they want to do it. And they want to do it because it's, the, it's for the best of the organization. It's for the best of, of, of the company. And, and I would say that is probably the hardest thing. My conversation today is with two different veterans, senior in the tech industry. In addition to talking about their long and successful career, including operations, program management, product management, and more, we talk about the ideal team player based on their experience hiring hundreds of people, the difference between a good boss and a bad boss, differences in leadership out of the military, and more. This interview brings over 20 years of hard-earned experience that is a wealth of knowledge regardless of your desired career path. As always, at beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find show notes with links to everything we discuss, as well as over 376 other exceptional episodes just like this one. So with that, let's dive into my conversation with Peter and Mike. Well, joining me today, both in Huntsville, Alabama, in the same office right now, or same building, different offices right now, my guests are Mike Sedgwick and Peter Shanfaloni. Uh, Mike and Peter, welcome to Beyond the Uniform. Thank you very much. I want to give listeners some of your backgrounds, and I'll start with Mike. Um, He is a vice president of defense and aerospace products for SCI Technology. Uh, He is responsible for the oversight of SEI's aircraft and tactical product organizations, including the Firecom and 2CNET product lines. Maybe I said that incorrectly. He has extensive expertise in wide-ranging areas, including strategic planning, defense and aerospace contract management, P&L accountability, business development, product management contracts, budgeting, scheduling, and logistics. Previously, he's held titles of Senior Program Manager and Director of Aircraft Systems with SCI. And prior to SCI, he was General Manager of AAR Integrated Technologies and Business Director for the Hypersonic Design and System Integration Segment at I3. Mike has managed organizations and teams that include program management, engineering, contracts, quality, manufacturing, HR, and supply chain to ensure the seamless production of sophisticated defense and aerospace hardware. Beyond his impressive business credentials, he served honorably in the U.S. Armed Forces. He served in the U.S. Army Reserve as a military intelligence officer and battalion intelligence officer with 10th Special Forces Group Airborne and as a company executive officer with the 82nd Airborne Division. He holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Manufacturer Engineering from the Brigham Young University and an MBA from the University of Phoenix. And let me give a pause for Peter, who is the Vice President of Operations at SCI Technology. Uh, He is responsible for SCI's manufacturing operations, 
to include production, manufacturing, quality engineering, and supply chain. He was born and raised in Ottawa, Canada, completed an electrical engineering degree at the University of Ottawa in the regular officer training program, which is the Canadian equivalent to the ROTC. Uh, during and upon completion of his degree, he served in the Canadian Army as a combat engineer and infantry officer, including service with the commando in the Canadian Airborne Regiment. In 1993, Peter joined Motorola while transitioning to re reserve service. He moved to the U.S. in 1997 with Motorola while continuing his service as a Canadian Army reservist, including exchange position postings with the 82nd Airborne, 36th ID, and 4th ID. In addition to these roles, he also supported the sharing of information between the Canadian and United States militaries on lessons learned in IED awareness for both the Iraq and Afghanistan campaigns. Shortly after becoming a U.S. citizen in 2005, he was mobilized in support of recovery operations following Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. Following the move to Huntsville in 2006, Peter took on various capacities with Benchmark Electronics and Electronics Manufacturing while both continuing his role with the Canadian Army Reserves, as well as completing a master's degree in electrical engineering. Peter returned to his town in Ottawa from 2009 to 2011 to work for General Dynamics while commanding a reserve engineer battalion. While in Ottawa, he completed his third and final deployment. And, this, and upon his return to the United States in 2011, he resumed work with Benchmark Electronics in various capacities, including general manager and vice president of global accounts. Peter is a graduate of the Canadian Army Command and Staff Course, New Zealand Grade 2 Staff Course, and Canadian Joint Command and Staff Program. He joined SCI in 2020 and is currently working towards completion of his PhD in engineering. He and his wife of 25 years have seven children, two of which are presently serving in the U.S. military. So <laughs> let me take a breath there. Uh, Mike and Peter, you both have extremely distinguished careers. I just want to make space if there's anything you want to add or amend to those bios. Well, I'll just, just certainly, add, go ahead. Yeah, I guess from, from my, uh, my perspective, uh, one of the things that I did do, and we'll talk about this as we go about, uh, you know, our session today, uh, I also completed a, an MBA uh, because I, I recognized that that was a weakness uh, in my in my skills that I needed to to uh, to bolster in order to make that transition to the civilian career. So that that is not included in the bio. Thank you. And I was going to include uh, that I started out in the infantry as a ground pounder, just like uh, Pete, and did my did a transition into intelligence later in my career. I had three deployments as well: two to Iraq and one to Afghanistan. Two as an infantryman and one as an intelligence officer. Awesome, thank you both. Um, so let's let's start with Peter, um, and then we'll go to Mike. But I would love to learn about the initial transition you you took from the military to being a civilian, and and most importantly for our audience, how you navigated choosing your career path. Right. Yeah. So that was a, a great question. Um, the uh, it was a time uh, when the uh, the Canadian military had been it was going into a, a very uh, slow period. Uh, there were budget cuts. We had a federal government that wasn't very pro pro military at the time in Canada. So uh, you know if you if you saw the tea leaves, you could anticipate that um, the next decade or so was going to be a, a rough time to be a, a soldier. 
so I decided to get out. Uh, and I, I would say the, um, uh, the things that, that I, I, I was scared initially, there was some fear. Uh, I, I had done it, uh, my transition out of the, uh, the active duty uh, at a time when I was just following the recession in 1990 to 1992. So, you, you know, the newspapers were full of stories about people being laid off and having a hard time paying their mortgage and all that. So there, there was a, uh, there was a tendency on the part of people in the military that were leaving to, you know, it's, it's easier just to stay in and continue to collect that, that solid paycheck. So there's a risk to take. And um, also, am I up for that challenge? Am I, am, am I, are my skills uh, suitable for the civilian uh, workforce? Uh, and, and I did take that transition. And the best way to describe it initially, uh, because I, I really missed some parts of the military. I missed the camaraderie, the people, the uh, being part of something that was a lot bigger than you um, and, and transitioning into an environment where uh, it, it was nowhere near as exciting uh, from a day-to-day -day perspective. And I almost characterized it initially as sort of like, like a bad breakup, you know, you, you, um, you know where you're, uh, you're missing so the things you miss or the or you really miss, and uh, and so so that for a while there there was a bit of anxiety with the transition, but uh, but in the end it worked out. I think a lot of the reason why it worked out was because I continue to serve in the reserves, and also in the mental preparation. That's great. Thank you. How about you, Mike? Yeah, a lot of the same feelings as as Peter. One of the things that really helped me because I, I, I loved my time in the Army, absolutely loved it, for the same reasons that Pete talked about, as far as the camaraderie, the excitement. Um, so going into the reserves, it was, was the same, that helped with my transition. Um, when I joined the Army, I never intended to be a career guy. I never, I never intended to do 20 years, so mentally I was always prepared earlier in my career. I planned to do three to four years and ended up doing almost eight. Um, so for me, I was excited to get out into the business world. I, I, again, knew I was transitioning, so I finished my MBA before I got out. Um, and I, I think I, I, it, was a, it was a tough transition, one that I was ready for. But I think the biggest, one of the biggest differences, I think, from working in the military and what you're used to, to transferring into the, to the civilian space, is it actually takes, in my opinion, even more leadership and more personal skills because in the in the military you tell somebody to do something you take for granted that it's going to get done it's it's going to get done just be, because you said it <laughs> and then you get to the civilian world and and you you got a group of engineers working on a project you say hey guys you know we're behind schedule we got to work this weekend and two of them say oh no i got a birthday this weekend and one of them says i'm going on vacation and and that's that was kind of a shock to me at first uh, but then you get used to it. You, you realize who you're dealing with and, and what kind of circumstances you're dealing with. But you don't control their lives like you do in the in the military. And it takes it takes a little bit more nuance in your leadership, uh, I think, to leave the army. I love that awareness of the the changing yeah. circumstances and that that kind of dawning on you and realizing like, oh, I, I'm imagining you have to realize like, oh, there's different tools I need as a leader to be able to get the same results and, and kind of seeing that, that jarring transition. Um, let's, let's start with Mike this time and then we'll go to Peter. But um, 
if just to set the stage for people so they understand what you do, if if you were to Mike bump into someone on the street and and found out that they served in the military or maybe they're on active duty and they say, "Oh, Mike, what do you do for a living?" How do you answer that? I'd say I'm I'm uh, I'm really into program management. So even though my title right now is vice president of products. I started out as a program manager as soon as I came out of the military, uh, really kind of knowing that that's what I wanted to get into. Um, you know, I've, I've worked in manufacturing and now I work in defense electronics manufacturing. I've done that for, for a while. But to me, as you, as you kind of go up the chain in a company, it's just, it's just more and more levels of program management in the track that I'm in. Uh, you start out as a program manager learning learning the ropes and managing maybe a, a individual small program. And then you just grow pretty soon. You own a portfolio of programs and pretty soon you have other program managers reporting to you that own portfolios. And um, I really enjoyed program management. And that's really what I consider myself doing now, even though um, I manage it now at the business level and own the profit and loss for a large segment of the business. I still really consider it the core uh, program management. That's great. Thank you. How about you, Peter? Yeah, so I would consider myself the uh, sort of the pointy end, if you will, uh, in, in terms of actually having to uh, direct operations. So think along the lines of uh, like a battalion commander or uh, uh, perhaps a, a brigade commander uh, you, you, where you've got responsibility for operations. You've got to deliver uh, either a service or a product, and you, you've got a whole staff of people, uh, you know, so I've got the vast majority of employees that work for me. Um, so I have to, every day you deal with the human resources side, you deal with directing, and you you uh, uh, have to deal with uh, making sure that people are aligned and communicating and, and, and whatnot. So, so the, um, so I, I think I probably have the the closest approximation to uh, what individuals would see in the military when they think of, for example, their commander running an operations, that's, that's in essence uh, what I've got. And, and this, a lot of the same challenges that uh, somebody who's a, a leader in the military has, I have the same, same challenges. But again, to Mike's earlier point that, uh, you, you know, you have to, uh, you don't control the resources 24 seven. And, and, you know, so there's, there's some nuances associated with that, but, but we run a, a 24 hour operation here. So you got to deal with things outside of hours and all that stuff. So whenever something goes wrong, you know, you have to be, uh, you know, in the middle of it and, and stuff like that. So think of, of, of it in that context. And, and I want to ask, and, and correct me if I'm uh, misinterpreting this, but for both of you, you know, it seems like at a high level, you left the military you chose an industry of let's call it manufacturing. And then at some point you, you, I don't know if you would call it niching down, but you, you went even further to defense manufacturing. And I'm curious, um, what, what led you down that path? What initially attracted you to manufacturing and then what attracted you again into the defense side of things late, later in your career. And, uh, we'll start with Mike and then Peter. Okay. Okay. Um, so good question. I, from my bio, you know that I, I, I have a degree in manufacturing engineering. So manufacturing was always something that I was very interested in. Um, and then as I knew I was going to be transition, transitioning out of the military, it, it really goes back 
the reason I got into defense manufacturing, it, it really goes back to that was obviously I had experience now in the defense industry or in, in defense in general. Um, but it was also a man, this is an, another way where I can kind of continue to contribute to the fight and continue to, you know, contribute to the progress of the war, con contribute to soldiers' well being, uh, even on the civilian side. So I was in the reserves, that was a good uh, transition for me. But going into defense industry was a transition for me as well, feeling like I was still part of the, the bigger picture that Pete talked about. That's great. Thank you. Yes. So from my perspective, when, when I left the military uh, and worked at Motorola, uh, the, um, uh, it was a product design role. So I was designing communications uh, products. So it was very pure engineering, but I used to interact quite regularly with the manufacturing operations because whatever I designed had to go into manufacturing. And, and then I got to uh, watching the way, uh, you know, that, that operations conducted itself and, and, uh, and some of the nuances associated with that. And, and, and I believe that it felt, it fit better with my personality. Uh, you know, you have to be more of a communicator uh, you know, more integrating with, with people as opposed to it, when, it, as a design engineer, you're more uh, tied into uh, uh, computer uh, you know, related design activities and so on. And I really enjoy the interaction, the human interaction side of it. Uh, so I made the transition into manufacturing and, uh, and I've worked in various different roles in manufacturing all the way from building computer products uh, to the tune of 100,000 a month. Uh, to, you know, building uh, small units, uh, uh, a small volume of a very complex unit. Uh, but to Mike's point, though, I really gravitated towards the, uh, the, the aerospace defense industry, more the defense industry, because of the fact that I had the ability to uh, support the warfighter. And, and that, to me, is a, is a passion. Um, you know, so the ability to, to contribute uh, in, in some form, that uh, beyond, you know, just, just, you know, building cell phones or something. And I think number two is that uh, when I uh, was deployed uh, and on various phases in, in my career, I used to run into uh, pieces of equipment that I felt were poorly manufactured or, or there, there seemed to be, uh, it didn't work very well or, or there, was a, um, there were some, some uh, errors or flaws in it. And I, I used to think about how, you know, there should have been much more attention to detail put into that product. Uh, and, and so that's why I'm, I'm pretty passionate about this industry. And, and you've touched on, I, I wanted to kind of, for, for listeners who might be casting their sights on what do I do after the military or what's my next career move, I wanted to just give them a little bit of context of what you perceive as the differences between these two industries. So I don't even know if this is the right way to uh, uh, create the distinction, but I, I would say like manufacturing versus on the defense side of manufacturing. One thing that's come through already from both of you is, is um, there is that sense of purpose and being part of the mission of contributing to our national security. So that definitely comes through. I'm just curious if you've observed anything else that's different in terms of how the company might operate or um, yeah, any, any, any differences that stand out to you between defense and non-defense? And, and we'll start with Peter and then, then go to Mike. Yeah, most certainly. There, there are a lot of uh, uh, challenges that are unique to the defense and aerospace industry. 
a lot of it has to do with uh, government regulations, uh, you know, uh, FARs, DFARs, uh, which are acquisition uh, terms. Um, so you have to, there's a lot of restrictions that don't, that don't exist, for example, if you're building cell phones, you, you, you know, you, in terms of the qualification and, and, and whatnot. Um, and so so there's, there is that uniqueness, but the challenge I think that we often run into, and, and I, you know, Mike can amplify this if he wishes to, but the, uh, one of the challenges we deal with here in, is that we're a defense portion of a parent company that does other, that does other things. They build other products. And, and uh, so it's, it's trying to uh, work with, with all the, the limitations and the challenges in the, in the restrictions that are associated with building defense articles in the context of a company that may not necessarily understand or appreciate uh, all these these uh, idiosyncrasies and, and being able to to kind of work in that environment sometimes can be challenging. Yeah. And, and before we before we go on to Mike, just one quick thing, Peter, could you clarify for listeners and, and also for me, so you're, you're both um, part of SCI technology, but your parent company, and, and let me know if I'm mispronouncing this, but uh, San Mina, San Mina um, could you could you kind of clarify for listeners what the the um, relationship there is and how they relate? Yeah, certainly. Uh, so SCI Technologies is a wholly owned uh, corporation that falls under Samina. Uh, Samina is a is a you know a multi billion dollar I think it's eight billion a year sales uh, multi billion dollar contract manufacturer. So they build electronic products. Uh, they could they could have one production line building. Uh, cable modems and other production line building, cell phones, uh, they might have uh, uh, computer products and they could be building medical devices, ventilators and whatnot. Uh, and then, but we're just the, this, just the defense portion of that. So our specialty is building again, defense articles and in and, and space in uh, aerospace products. Perfect. Thank you, Peter. So, Mike, you were going to continue Peter's thread on this kind of distinction between the two the two industries there. Yeah, I, I really think uh, Pete hit it. The first thing that popped into my mind when you asked the question was was the regulation because there there's so many manufacturing is manufacturing that you have to put out high quality product. Um, it, you have to deliver to your customers on time. So there's so much in common there, but then when you're building for defense, there's just a whole different set of regulations that you have to deal with. And I would say that, uh, that the regulations and dealing with the government slows down the cycle time as well. Whereas if I was working for Apple and we come up with the iPhone 12, we're gonna release that thing in you know 18 months and it's gonna be off and marketing it and, and out the door. Whereas on the, the government side, you know, they'll release a request for proposal and then they'll put out a specification and then dozens of companies bid on it. And it's just a very slow, very purposeful uh, process to make sure that you follow all the acquisition rules uh, appropriately. So sometimes that's frustrating, uh, but at the same time, you get to you get to work on something that's a lot more cool than a cell phone. You know, you're, you're putting most of the uh, things that we build, whether it's an intercom system or... Uh, data concentrators or parts for missiles and things like that, electronics that go inside, you know, almost all of them have something to do with, uh, with, with life or death for, for some of our soldiers or, or the effectivity of our weapon systems on the battlefield. So it's, it's satisfying. I, I appreciate the nuance there where it's almost like um, the, the downside is the regulation and the speed and right. the, the bureaucracy and the other side is like, well, you are, 
dealing with with things that are incredibly high stakes and it's it's higher impact and so therefore you have to move more slowly and more deliberately and i i love that trade-off because um sometimes i think we try to simplify things to either good or bad but there's there's both both sides there and one might be unappealing but the other is appealing and they go hand in hand you can't really have one without the other um and yeah and it, yeah, just a, a, you know, and and when you're, uh, I have two two of my children are serving in the U.S. military right now, and and I, one of them's in the Air Force, one of them's in the Army, and uh, the one that's in the Air Force, there is a high high probability that uh, there's going to be an aircraft that she's going to fly that has a product or an article built in this building, and so mm-hmm. it's personal, and you you know uh, everybody who's uh, who works in SCI. Uh, knows somebody or is somehow uh, has a connection to the military and feels that connection. And that's, that's very important. I want to share something that Pete, that's, that's so true. And I, when I first came to SCI as a program manager, I mean, I was, I was fresh out of the army and fresh out of a deployment to Iraq, but I I got the group together and I told them a story about a, a fight that we got into Afghanistan that kind of was dragging on and dragging on. And they called called my platoon, we were the QRF, and we went up through the mountains, and we lost comms completely with, with anybody. Uh, back then, we didn't, have, we didn't have satellite communications. This was very early in the war. And uh, we finally got an Apache on station, and I could talk to the pilot, and that was the first person I could talk to probably for after 30 minutes of still driving just out in the mountains trying to find these guys. And uh, I told those guys, I said, you know, the intercom system and everything that was that Apache was talking through to me was 100% guaranteed built in this building. And the systems processors and weapon processors on that helicopter, uh, 100% guaranteed were built in this building. And, you know, I had 15 people come up to me after that and said, man, I never, I, I never realized that. I never, you know, the, the electrons that were coming down to me came through the the you know the resistor that you put on that board or whatever I, it's it really brought things home to them and it is personal I, I love i love the intimacy in that for each of you because you know sometimes i think i think you're part of a very large organization and sometimes the outside perspective is is the impersonal nature of that but i love the representation for both of you like a very a very heartfelt connection to this mission and purpose and I think that's great too, because the overarching mission in and of itself is beautiful, that you're, you're helping defense, you're helping protect our nation. But I love that personal tie that each of you have. I imagine that gives you extra leverage in the day-to-day. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's and so we'll start with Peter on this one and then, and then we'll go to Mike. But um, I wanted to double click on that, that thought of the day-to-day, and especially for listeners who might be considering this career path um, I, I understand that every day is different, so we can you can view it as kind of the month to month or even year to year. But just trying to paint the picture for them of the types of activities that you do and the types of things that fill your day or your year. Yeah, no, great question. And and so uh, amazingly, my day uh, r- right now in terms of, of the job here is, is not together all that much different than, uh, than when I was full-time or as a battalion commander. Uh, you, you know, I start off m- my day with, uh, you know, checking in emails, uh, looking for messages, you know, that I didn't pick up the night before, uh, sort of getting a, a sort of a situational awareness for the day, making sure that I'm uh, plugged into any issues that came up in the last 24 hours that I wasn't already aware of. 
Uh, and then I launch in my morning meetings. Every morning I have a, a, a team meeting where we go through the operations. We, we go talk about uh, the quality metrics, the on-time delivery, uh, what issues did we encounter? Uh, we de-conflict stuff right on the phone. Uh, usually that call goes on about 45 minutes, uh, sometimes a half an hour. Uh, and then, and then I launch into uh, you know a series of meetings or discussions around uh, strategic initiatives that we're trying to drive. Uh, to you know, you, do, you don't want to be stagnant in this business because that'll kill you. You want to be uh, constantly looking to improve, uh, drive new initiatives, and, and change uh, for the better. Uh, and then I always get out on the floor. Uh, and that's important to me is that human interaction, that connection to uh, the men and women that make up our team. Uh, so I spend uh, an average of two hours a day just walking around, talking to people, uh, actually talking to the operator, uh, you know, somebody who, uh, you know, might have uh, just started yesterday and, and all they do is maybe put a, a, bo a circuit board inside of a housing and, and, you know, and just talking to them and finding out what their, their, how they can improve the job, what can be done differently uh, and, and get some feedback from the, from the folks on the floor that touch it every day. And, and also it gives me an opportunity for, for, to pass along my sort of passion about quality to them so that they see it. Uh, and then the afternoons are usually a continuation of some of the, the meetings and strategic initiatives. I usually try to make a point out of talking to a customer every day uh, in, you know, at some level or another. And, uh, and then towards the end of the day, things start getting quiet when we have shift change in the second shift. Uh, I, I go out there and see what's going on with that, make sure that the second shift supervisor is oriented. Uh, and all the management team is is aligned. There's been a good handover, uh, and then as the day closes to an end, uh, that's when it gets quiet. And it's a beautiful opportunity to get my actions done and review emails, uh, so that the next day I repeat the process. Just real, real quickly before we go to Mike, I love the um, you know the sense I get is that you're you're dealing with you know high level strategic issues, but then on the floor, and and I like the variety there where I picture you almost zooming in and zooming out throughout yep. the day. But I, I also, you know, what comes through is that leadership piece from the military of, of so supporting and getting to know your people and whether that's the, the people on the, the line or the people who are um, your customers that you're talking to, but really going there and being curious about ways in which you can support them. It's, it's uh, great to see that in action. Yeah, definitely. And it's important because if it's, you could get yourself if you're not, uh, you know, talking to uh, the folks on the production floor and not immersing yourselves in, in, in understanding the details. Then you uh, you run the risk of of missing some key facts, uh, and then eventually you'll get in trouble. Now, I've got a team of people. You know, the, the, my management team. Uh, I don't know. I don't micromanage what they do. I let them do. They're they're professionals. They they are really good at what they do. I let them do that. Uh, so uh, you have to be able to to step away. You, you know, they know my intent. They know my end state. So I can uh, back away and let them do what they do well. But at the same time, it's it's about checking to make sure that my direction is somehow not getting lost in the translation from my management team all the way down to that that operator on the floor who's who's putting a a, a bolt into a, a chassis. That's great, Mike. How about you? 
Yeah, I think uh, Pete, Pete and I, uh, we, we have the same boss. Um, we work on the staff together. So I think I, I have a very similar schedule uh, to Pete and I try and manage it uh, very similarly. I, I start out the day with uh, um, some planning and email and then uh, move to various meetings throughout the day to try and manage the, the business. I, I was thinking as, as Pete was kind of talking that, you know, when you start out in the military, whether you're an officer or an enlisted man, you start out very tactical, you know, very hands-on, out in the woods, marching around or shooting the gun or whatever. Then as you move up the, as you move up the food chain, you, you're responsible for more and more and you start thinking more strategically. And I think that really, um, if you ask my boss what he wants me to do, uh, on a percentage of my time on a daily basis, he wants me thinking strategically. He wants me to spend 75% of my time thinking strategically on where we can take the business, how we can improve uh, the business that we have, how we, how we can expand the business with, uh, with other additional customers. And then maybe 25% on that uh, tactical helping program managers manage their program or addressing a, a specific issue with a customer or um, reviewing specific contract language or something like that. So, and that's, that's a chore because you can, you could sit in your office and put your head down and be just completely consumed by the tactical every day. Um, and, but like Pete said, you've got to, you've got to force yourself to get out away from that, talking to your people, collecting kind of the big picture so that you can focus on more strategic things as a, as a senior leader. I, I love that balance on that. And I, I had two questions, Mike, for you in particular. Um, the, the first one is the distinction between um, when you're managing a program versus a, a product or a product line. And could you kind of educate our audience on, on how you see that distinction? Yeah, that's, that's actually a great question. And I don't think... I don't think that's very well defined one. And I think that a lot of companies, if you ask 10 different people, they would all give you different answers. Um, so program management, it, at first it starts out with project management, right? How, how I complete a task. I've, I've, I've identified a task. I've identified a project. How do I manage that from end to end? So if it's, if I'm designing a, a mouse for the computer, okay, you know, it starts out in the design phase where we take it all the way through the prototyping into prototype production, test it out with customers, bring it back, refine it, and pretty soon it gets handed off to Pete and his team and they manufacture it and, and we're off and running. That's project management. And program management is usually just managing a collection of projects. So when, when, I, think of, when I think of my team that is out there managing several design, several different design uh, programs or they're managing some different manufacturing programs and interacting with the customer. That's, that's a program management uh, role. When at SCI and in other companies that I've been to, when we talk about product management, um, that individual is responsible for the more strategic thinking of what, where this mouse is going. You know, what, is it going to be black in the future? Is it going to right click or is it, are we just going to wave over it? What features does the customer want? And, and he or she is responsible for managing the, the roadmap for this project and when we're going to upgrade it and how smart it needs to be in the future. So uh, those are two very distinct roles. In a lot of companies, um, maybe if I'm managing something that's relatively small, a lot of program managers do both. 
they're managing the product line, they're managing their customers, and they're managing the design and engineering projects for that customer or for that uh, product as well. But in in larger, mature companies, that that uh, role of responsibility is split out, and the product manager is really responsible for for that roadmap for the product. That's great. And and the second part of that is I, I know a lot of our listeners are always curious about certifications or things that they can do to better prepare them for a role. How how critical do you think is a PMP for those who are interested in a career in program management? I think um, I think it's it's very important. Not not that uh, you can't be a great program manager without it, because you certainly can. Experience experience teaches you a lot more than than the PMP certification ever could. But there's a couple good benefits to the PMP certification. One, if it gives you the baseline and language so that when you're talking to other program managers, you're all speaking the same terms because, you know, PMP in the United States is pretty universal. If you've gone through that, I know what a WBS is and I know what the structure looks like. And I, I can speak the same language as all those other program managers. Um, and it, then it teaches you what a best case looks like or, or, or what, uh, what right looks like, I guess you should say. And I always tell people, if you followed everything, in the PMP certification, you did everything. You would have the best documented, uh, best ran program that is over budget and late because there's just so much to do. Right? Um, but it, it shows you what, what best practice looks like across you know, a myriad of project management uh, disciplines. And that's where it's valuable. And it's almost like a degree, just like to get into the army as an officer, you have to have a degree, doesn't matter what it's in. You, but you have to have a degree. Uh, a PMP certification is something that they just, it's just expected. And, um, you know, some companies uh, won't, wouldn't even interview you unless you just had that little PMP certification down at the bottom. Uh, I would. I've hired a lot of program managers without PMP certifications um, because I see, I see other values that are more important than that. But I also try to get them certified, you know, pretty quickly and early in their career. So... I hope that answers your question. Yeah, I love that. I love that distinction too between like it comes through as like the theoretical knowledge versus the experience. And I love that that snippet about the um, being over budget and uh, <laughs> late if you just follow these rules. One, one last thing I wanted to ask before I, I move on to Peter is um, you had mentioned there, you said um, you hire people without a PMP because there's other things that you value more anything there to share with listeners that might be helpful of like either traits or previous experience that you feel has been valuable in the people you've hired? Yeah. I, um, I think Pete and I have talked about this quite a bit, but if, if I could recommend a book for people that are, that are kind of uh, looking to transition to the military or out of the military, I, I'd recommend the ideal team player. And he talks about uh, hungry humble and smart and not uh, book smart he's talking about people smart how to interface with people so hungry humble and smart i think are so much more important um, than a certification or education or even experience um, because people that are hungry humble and smart are are team players and they can come in and they're not going to cause problems they can lead teams they could be part of teams um, hungry you know they're going to dig in they're going to learn their job and not wait not sit back and wait for somebody to tell them how to do their job or tell them what to do next 
So I think those types of attributes are much more important than your education, a certification, or even experience. That's great. And for listeners, I'll, I'll add in the show notes at beyondtheuniform.org for this episode, the I- ideal team player. So you can check that out. Um, Peter, one thing I wanted to ask about with you is you're responsible for SEI's manufacturing operations. And that includes production and manufacturing and quality engineering and supply chain. So much goes into that. What, what's the hardest part of your job? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Uh, you know, the, um, because I got asked that the other day uh, by somebody else. I think the number, the hardest thing for me is uh, is dealing with a lot of the the human resources, the human element uh, of the job. Uh, I mean, I, I could figure out any problem uh, or, you know, try to come up with a solution to any issue that may come up. Uh, you know, certainly if we have to deal with some system complexity or whatnot, I can I can work through that. Uh, but the issue that always uh, is the most difficult is dealing with the, the motivation, the, the uh, getting people to do uh, what you want them to do. And, and it talks to the point that Mike raised earlier about making sure that people remain hungry, the, that people, uh, you know, it's one thing to be hungry on day one of your new job. But it's another thing entirely when it's when it's, you know, year five and uh, you know, maybe you're, you know, you've, you've been passed over promotion. You, you might be uh, not had a raise in two years. Uh, you're tired. Uh, you, you know, your boss is breathing down your neck because he wants you to meet a certain deadline. It's at those points that people uh, tend not to be uh, uh, excited and, and motivated and, um, and, and hungry. Uh, so it's about keeping people hungry, about keeping people motivated uh, it's about winning the 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 hearts and minds of the employees so that they they uh, they're they're committed to the cause, and and it comes back to a point that Mike raised at the very very beginning, and that is in the when you're in the military uh, when you give out an order you, people do it and if they're not if their heart and soul isn't into doing it they got a sergeant major that's going to breathe down their neck, whereas is here you you have to lead. And, and you can't uh, pretend to be a leader. You can't hide behind a rank on your shoulder. You actually have to lead through the issue and, and get people uh, motivated to solve the problem and to deliver uh, because they want to do it. And they want to do it because it's, the, it's for the best of the organization. It's for the best of, of, of the company. And, and I would say that is probably the hardest thing because even ourselves, you know, we get, uh, sometimes we get, it's easy to get complacent and uh, to get worn down or tired and, oh, I've seen this issue like five times in the last six months. But it's important that you demonstrate to your, uh, your teams, uh, you know, a continuous, uh, you know, a mindset of continuous improvement uh, and about staying fresh and, and, uh, and hungry. I think it's interesting to, to through that lens of hearts and mind and the, the lens of keeping people hungry, yeah. viewing your two hours a day where you're going through and meeting people face to face, it takes on a whole new meaning because I, I'm guessing that in that time you're forging that relationship so that your quote unquote orders carry more weight, but also understanding what motivates them, how to keep them engaged, how to keep them hungry. That's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to think now of, of those two hours of your day each day. Yeah. And, and, and it gets more complex because you know, you're seeing, you know, we're seeing a shift in generation here from, 
the baby boomers that uh, were were much more loyal to organizations, were willing to put up with, I think, a lot more uh, of the uh, uh, sort of the um, you know, this, I I, I got to characterize this well, but I mean they they were a little bit more patient in terms of the organizations that they worked for. Uh, now we got millennials that are coming up that, uh, you know, they need to be, uh, uh, you know, constantly given new challenges and uh, in, in regularly motivated. Uh, so it, it's a, you, you got a different generation. And now we got this, this new generation, uh, you know, Gen Z coming up, uh, which are, uh, it was an entirely different set of challenges. So, so you really have to become a bit of a chameleon here in terms of, of uh, identifying uh, the audience and being able to to uh, get the right messaging across uh, to motivate that audience and uh, and keep them keep them passionate about what they do. Um, I'm I'm imagining many of our listeners either do or will be managing that diverse type of workforce, and I I, I imagine it's hard to speak in generalities. But any insights stand out to you about um, how to approach leading? Generation Z versus millennial versus the baby boomers. Yeah, and and so this is one of the the big the big challenges and risks that uh, people leaving the uh, the military service uh, have. Uh, you go from this environment where there's a lot of structure and command, uh, where uh, orders are followed. Uh, at times, it can be very autocratic. Uh, and uh, so there, there is a tendency to port over that style into the civilian workforce. And this is one of the things that, that I had to learn pretty quickly. And that is, uh, I, had to, I had to change my approach. I had to change the way I, I led people. And uh, if you try, uh, you know, that dictatorial approach or autocratic approach, it, it may not resonate with your employees, especially across these different uh, generations. And so... Uh, one of the uh, the things that's that's in, that's uh, people have to understand is you have to employ a, a softer leadership style, more collaborative, uh, more servant leadership style, uh, which would be uh, very uncharacteristic in the military, but but in the civilian world, uh, those resonate very well with uh, with the millennials and even the, the the Gen Zs that are coming up. They they want to see you as more of a facilitator. Uh, you know, facilitate, give me the tools, give me the experience, you know, the opportunities that I need to grow and, uh, and, and kind of, you know, stand back, course correct, but let me do my thing. And, and you get great results when you do that. Uh, but, uh, but it, it takes a, a certain amount of self-awareness. Uh, and, and as Mike had pointed out earlier, you, you've got to sometimes take a dose of humility because, uh, you're going to get a 20-something that's going to uh, going to really uh, show you something amazing. And if you if you don't have humility and an ability to to stand back and watch and 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 keep an open mind, you might miss that. That's great. Um, one last question for you, Peter is is um, if someone listening is interested in a career in manufacturing production, any advice on how to approach that career or things they can start doing now to get ready for it? Yeah, no, it's a, that's a great question. So, um, uh, you know, I've, I've been asked that question before and, and I really characterize it to five things that I would recommend people uh, do if they're interested in a career in manufacturing. Number one is, uh, uh, you know, get, you get, uh, get your skills up or, or, or study on, your, on the technology or, or get more technically uh, aware or astute 
uh, you know, one of the challenges when I see uh, an interview, an individual who's uh, is seeking to get out of the military, the one concern I have often is, is uh, you know, how are their technical skills? Uh, are they going to be willing to embrace new technology? So that's number one. Number two is, uh, uh, you know, really do a lot of, of reading and, and studying uh, quite a bit about uh, Lean, lean systems, lean practices. This is something that uh, you know that's a quite a bit foreign to a lot of folks in the military. Is the idea that doing more with less and and how do you get efficient? I think number three is to. Uh, I always tell people when you're in that job search mode, when you're leaving the military, take a look at your resume. It's one page that's supposed to describe you in its entirety, and. And uh, you know, it does it does it really speak to voluminous activity that you do in your life, or is it uh, or is it pretty plain Jane, right? And and because this is the things we look for when we're interviewing, we're we're looking for the complete person. Do they do they just surf the internet, or are they taking night courses? Do they uh, are they looking to complete a certification, or do they just uh, watch TV in the evenings? This type of thing. Uh, and number four is network, network, network. I always tell people that the uh, online job postings are merely the start. Uh, you really want to network. You really want to get out and, and get to know uh, organizations that are out there that you're interested in, in possibly working for. Um, and then lastly, I, I think it's um, for those, of, those people that are leaving the military that seek to have a leadership role, spend the time to study and read about uh, you know, leadership techniques that are more effective in the uh, the private sector or public sector. Uh, really, really get, you know, spend the time to understand that. It's a different world uh, than perhaps what you're used to, but uh, the time spent getting ready for that transition will pay back in, in, in spades later on. That's great. Um, I'll ask Mike and then, then Pierre, but um, any, any, um, for listeners, that could be people on active duty, people who've been out for a few years, military families or spouses. Um, anything you'd like them to know about why they should consider a career at SCI or what the culture is like? Yeah, I, I, SCI is one. It, it's and I, and I think this is true for a lot of defense contractors. You'll find that defense contractors are very friendly to uh, exiting military. One, it would look very silly if they didn't, if you were in the reserves and they didn't support you as a reservist or um, they didn't support your transition, uh, that would look terrible for them because they're defense contractors. That's where all their money comes from. Um, and SCI is no exception. SCI uh, is very uh, pro-veteran, uh, pro-military, and most of the leadership at SCI um, has a lot of experience hiring people coming out of the military. I know in, in my program managers, for instance, I would say 40 to 50% of my program managers are prior military. I, I, I hire a lot of uh, uh, captain major, you know, junior officers, maybe early field grade officers coming out. And of course, all over the defense industry, there's a lot of, uh, um, uh, whether, it's, whether it's enlisted for my technical FAE type guys, or a colonel for uh, maybe a larger role or even a business development role. Um, so SEI has good benefits for veterans. You'll find that uh, a, a lot of places, um, if you're a reservist, will pay the difference between what you make when you're on drill or when you're on your advanced training and what you make in your job, because most, most of the time it's, it's less. 
Um, and SEI does does that. So those those types of things make it a great place uh, for for people to work. Um, uh, the, the last thing I would say is that SCI is fast paced and that's, you know, I have one of my program managers, a, a new one uh, that just got, uh, that just got out of the army, just log logistics officer. And he said, man, I, I start in the morning. I do a couple emails. I look up, it's lunchtime. I look back down and it's four o'clock and it's, it's like, man, I mean, it's just very fast paced. So if you if you like that kind of stuff, which a lot of military people do, nothing nothing uh, would be less appealing to me than to take a government job where the hardest thing I have to do that day is to finish my crossword puzzle in the morning, it, it, and that appeals to some people, but that doesn't appeal to me. So if you're if you're like Pete and I that like the fast pace and problems and dealing with people, SCI is a great place to to work. That's great. Anything to add on that, Pete? No, I mean, it just, he, he really characterized it well. I mean, especially the part about being fast paced. Uh, there's no boredom in this job. Uh, uh, you, you know, I, I worked at General Dynamics, uh, you know, uh, and, and that was a different industry in, a, in sort of a different capacity. And, uh, you know, things were, were significantly slower uh, in terms of the pace and, and the intensity. Uh, than they are here. So this is, uh, this is, you, you know, you're kind of, um, I almost think of it as a bit of an adrenaline sort of thing. We're, we're adrenaline junkies over here, but, uh, but you know, I, there have been employers that I've had in my career uh, where I, uh, I almost had to sort of hide the fact that I was a reservist. Uh, you think that's kind of strange, but the reason why is that uh, it wasn't so much about job protection as it was about career protection. And I was always worried that if they, uh, they would question my loyalties and my commitment if I, uh, if I admitted that I was a reservist, um, because they would have felt that, well, you know, are you, I can't promote you because you're not, a, you're not available 24-7 uh, when I need you. You might be off uh, uh, gallivanting all over the world. Um, so that doesn't exist here. I feel really proud about my uh, military service here. Uh, you know, as, as Mike had alluded to, we have a lot of folks here that, that are former military. Uh, and uh, so there's, uh, there's a, a sort of sense of passion and a sense of camaraderie. Uh, and, and a lot of that, um, I mentioned early, early on in this call about the things that I missed in the military, which was that teamwork and that, that camaraderie, the people. You know what? We get it here. And it's it's exciting because you you uh, we have a common bond, and that is that we we wore the uniform at some point, and it's amazing how 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 that brings people together. Um, so yeah, I mean it's uh, I I I won't talk to the the benefits and all that stuff like as Mike did, but I I really in, uh, I think that it's uh, from a, a, a an ex military uh, perspective, uh, it couldn't be a better place to work. Well, similar to, uh, it sounds like what your J job is that the time has flown by here. I know I usually like to just keep the last minute or two to be more open-ended. And we'll, we'll start with Peter and then go to Mike. But um, we covered a lot of ground. I'm sure there's things that we didn't talk about. I'd love to make space for either what have we not covered you want listeners to know or what are just some final words of wisdom you'd like listeners to leave with? Yeah, uh, so so a couple of points in, in uh you know, when I look back on things, uh, I, I always tell people, I say this to my kids too, uh, always remember the attributes that made you successful in the military and port those over to the civilian side. So things like, uh, 
you know, your, your uh, continuous growth and improvement, uh, things like, uh, you, you know, you're taking risks, your attention to detail, all these things that were, uh, you know, made you successful in the military, they are very important on the, uh, in, in the uh, civilian side. Uh, number two is, is continue to grow. Never, ever, ever stop growing. Read a lot, uh, really study all the time. Uh, you look at my, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of pursuit of a PhD. Uh, I have no business doing that at my age, but it's about continuous growth and, and constantly uh, uh, making sure that you're better tomorrow than you were yesterday. And, uh, and, and so if, if, you, if you develop that sort of approach in your life, you will always find yourself employed. There will never be a time when you're going to find yourself unemployed because you're, it's, a, it's a mindset that, that exists. And I think number three is, again, it comes back to what I said earlier, uh, you know, really think about and work on the, the softer leadership tone uh, that I mentioned earlier. It's important that when you get out into the uh, civilian side, that your uh, that your approach is is different in terms of of leadership than you what you had in the military. It's you know it's not insurmountable. It's certainly easy to come up with. There's a great book that I uh, th that I read and I pass it out to all my managers. I, it's it's almost mandatory reading. It's called Good Boss Bad Boss by Sutton, and uh, this is a an excellent book to explain all the bad things that people do, and sometimes they don't even know they're doing it. And so. Uh, I, you know, I'm not trying to plug his book here, but it's a, it's a wonderful uh, sort of transition book that people can read to, to kind of give them a sense of what they're about to encounter. Perfect. Thanks, Peter. How about you, Mike? Yeah, I think, I think Pete nailed the, the major points. I guess I would say to folks, um, I was more nervous than I needed to be coming out of the military. Um, so don't be nervous. If, well, be nervous about it if it's healthy. Don't, don't be overly nervous about it. Um, you're going to find a job. You, everybody tells you that your skills translate well. Well, guess what they do, uh, especially those fundamental characteristics and those core values from the military translate, translate perfectly into the civilian world. Um, the, the hard work and, uh, um, ethic that you've developed while you're in the military translate fantastically. Um, and then I, I think Pete hit the most important one is that continuously, continuously learning. I, I have, I have constantly, I have at least one business book or leadership book or, or management book that I'm reading all the time. And then I'll throw in a Harry Potter or something for fun. But I've always got some kind of professional development book uh, sitting on my nightshade or on the nightstand, or I'm listening to it on Audible or something like that. So that continuous development—I don't know that I'll ever get a PhD like Pete, but I'll, I'll read a bunch of books anyway. So that's my advice. Beautiful. Well, I, I know that both of you have full schedules between your work and, and the continuous pursuit of, of excellence. So I appreciate your taking the time to speak with me and beyond the uniform today. And thank you so much. Yeah, All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Beyond the Uniform is written and produced by me, Justin Asiri, with help from our Chief of Staff, Steve Bain, and our editor, Kathleen Dillon. We are an all-volunteer organization and would greatly appreciate your help in any of the following ways. First, spread the word. 
Beyond the Uniform has over 330 podcast episodes and 15 on-demand webinars, all offered for free. Help us spread the word on social media, at military bases, or whatever gets this resource in front of more men and women who need it. Positive reviews on iTunes go a long way towards this as well. Second, sponsorship. Beyond the Uniform relies on sponsorship to keep us going. There is so much more we'd like to do, but we don't have nearly the resources to do so. If you know of a company that would like to advertise in any way with Beyond the Uniform, please send them to beyondtheuniform.org. Third, donations. If you're in a financial position to donate, you can find more information on the support section of beyondtheuniform.org. At our website, beyondtheuniform.org, you'll also find 330-plus episodes categorized by industry, functional role, and more. You'll find a link for live events, typically four per month. You'll also find both free and for-purchase books that take a deeper dive on topics related to career growth. Thank you for your support as we aim to help members of the military and their families thrive in their post-military career and life. 